0: Turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, And if you are physically able, would you stand, please, in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. This is what the word of God says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. So tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you can tell from the passage we just read, we're taking a break from our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke to do something we've done for many years now. It's part of a church family rhythm of ours where we dedicate one Sunday each year to focus on the sanctity of human life. And so let's dive into our text today, looking at what we can learn from Jesus and how we can apply it uh, to our lives and to this important matter. Once again, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15, it says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And so many times, the way the Holy Spirit has inspired the writers of the gospel doesn't leave us much to wonder, right, what are the Pharisees are up to? I wonder if they're genuine. There's so many times as you're reading through the gospel where it says, and they want to kill him. And they want to trap him and they want to entangle him. And they set out to figure out how they're going to destroy him. Like, there's no need for us to wonder. It says it right there in the text. This is what they were doing. Verse 15, they plotted how to entangle or to ensnare or to entrap him in his words. Verse 16 says, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. You might think, why do they send their disciples? So the Pharisees had followers as well. And the Pharisees would have been fairly well-known among the Jewish people, and they dressed a certain way, and they could easily be picked out of a crowd. And what most people forget... Uh, and We don't have time to look there today, but what most people forget is that elsewhere in the Gospels, you could see the Pharisees, as much as they hated Jesus, they also feared the crowd. There was a crowd that was very much for Jesus as well, and they were not uh, necessarily afraid to throw down, if you will, uh, for the sake of Jesus. Whether they're saved or not, we don't know, but they're just, uh, there's a streak of violence that's running through them, and they're really passionate for Jesus. So the Pharisees actually had a fear of the crowd. And so since they could easily be recognized and they dressed a certain way, they said, let's send our disciples instead. And they even partnered with a group of people called the Herodians. Now, if you don't know much about the Herodians, neither do I. Uh, We actually don't know much about the Herodians. But when I look at that word, I do think of a name. I think of the name Herod, Right. And so most people believe that this was a group of people who were somehow tied in with King Herod or the family of King Herod. And they actually were at odds with the Jews on most things. But so many times, all it takes for you to be one with someone you're typically at odds with, sadly, is having a common enemy. And so the Jews didn't like the Herodians. The Herodians didn't like the Jews, but they both didn't like Jesus, and for different reasons, and so they decided that they could be in cahoots together. Uh, You may remember that it's King Herod. It may not be this Herod, but King Herod, uh, who hated Jesus so much, feared Jesus so much, wanted him killed so much that he ordered the killing of all male children ages 2 and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. And so we have the Herodians, and we have The disciples of the Pharisees yoking up, joining forces together, and going to Jesus. Pick it up in verse 16. And they sent their disciples along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And so they're playing it on pretty thick, right? They're like, we know that you now teacher. We know that you are wise and you speak the truth and you don't care about people's opinions. And we just, we want to know we've, we got questions. Hopefully you've got answers. You have wisdom. We lack the wisdom. Oh, please. And they're laying it on really, really thick. And they're like, tell us then, what do you think? Is it, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, uh, the tax that they would have been referring to was something called a, a poll tax. Uh, some people refer to it as a head tax, and so every, every year there had to be a certain amount paid for the people in your family and for who you, for how many people are in your family. There's actually a connection between the Greek word used here for tax and our word for census. And so there, uh, the, the purpose of this tax was to be paid each and every year by everyone in their family or, or for enough people in their family to pay Rome for the services that were rendered by Rome to the Jews, Uh, They had to pay for these things, even though they didn't want to pay for these things. Um, They were a conquered people. They weren't citizens of Rome, but they were conquered by Rome. And as a result of that, they enjoyed, if you will, certain benefits that came with being conquered people of Rome, one of which is called the Pax Romana or the Roman peace, the security that comes from being part of the Roman Empire. Because while a lot of, there was a lot of fighting going on in the regions around them, uh, it's kind of good to have been conquered by the people who are winning those wars. And so they provided a certain level of peace, but that came at a cost. And when the Jews paid this tax, they were having to reckon with the fact that not only, they, not, that they were not citizens of Rome, but the fact that they were conquered by Rome and the Jews wanted to be thought of as belonging to God. And so they might have resented this tax more than any other tax, not because of the cost, not that it was particularly expensive, but because of what it called to mind um, and because they considered themselves as belonging to God and not Caesar. Now, you might look at this question and say, I don't see the trap. Like, I know it says that they were plotting to kill Jesus. That's certainly concerning, right? Like, if people are plotting to kill you, you'd be concerned. But I don't see how this gets them to that end. It seems like it's just a question. Well, here's the thing. Keep in mind who we have there. We have the Jews, right? Pharisees, Jews, their disciples. And we have the Herodians. Not super sure who they were, but they were somehow connected to Herod, Roman Empire. And so what would happen if Jesus gave an answer that seemed favorable to the tax? If Jesus said yes, well, then he'd be resented by who? By the Jews that were listening to him. And so the Jewish leaders could arrest Jesus and hopefully have him even executed. Like that would be something they would hope. Uh, Then the crowd would not interfere because they're like, yeah, that's the guy that tells us to pay taxes to Rome. We don't like him. So if you could find a reason to kill him, that would be okay. And so the crowd would not interfere with that process. Now, if Jesus gave an answer that was against the tax the tax, excuse me, then the Romans would see him as an insurrectionist and then they would not be happy with him. So they thought this was like, this is kind of win-win, right? He's going to either say, pay it or don't pay it. And either way, at the end of it, when they say something, someone's going to want to kill him. So we like this, let's do this. But Jesus, look at verse 18, Jesus aware of their malice. (laughs) You ever like last week, the sermon was on sinful suspicion You ever, you know, you're talking to somebody, and hopefully it's not sinful. But you're like, I just get a weird feeling. I don't know if they're really. Oh, I don't know. Just get a weird, a weird vibe, right? Do you know Jesus never got a vibe, right? He was never like, I wonder. I think like said Jesus never. I I suspect that it could be malicious. Jesus, like, I see the malice. I know the malice. I know what they're up to. So that which you and I kind of wonder about, like, ooh, I just got a weird feeling. Jesus like, I got a weird feeling because it's weird. I wonder nothing. Uh, uh, Jesus never said, I wonder if, like, said Jesus never. You know what just occurred to me? Said Jesus never. Like, like th- these, these are things that he never had to deal with because he was not just man, but the God man. And so Jesus, verse 18, aware of their malice, Because he's Jesus, because he's the son of God, not because he kind of heard them. He he was told, nope. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Just, boom, calls them what they are says, I know what you're up to. Uh, You're you're hypocrites. What you're saying doesn't match what you're doing. What you're doing doesn't match what you're thinking. You don't give a rip about taxation and you don't really have a real question for me. You're a hypocrite. But he's like, all right, if you want to go, we can go. Like, we see Jesus as this, this lowly and gentle and loving shepherd person, and he was. But he also wasn't afraid to, like, go toe-to-toe with people who wanted to go toe-to-toe with him. And he's like, listen, you're hypocrites, but we can, we can go. We can play this game. Show me, verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And so they brought him a denarius. It's equivalent to a day's wage for labor. So Jesus asked for a coin. And he says... So holds up a coin, right? Whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose image is on the coin? And they're like, I think we all know the answer to that. It's Caesar's. Right? So similar to our coins, there's an image on it of some sort. We have, what do we have, Lincoln? Well, actually, I should, lots of young people. So there's these things called coins, They're metal, and they're round, and we exchange them for goods and services. And so paper, currency. Some of you are like, I don't think there's an image on Venmo. I don't know if that's... Or it's like lots of images on Venmo. It's whoever's using it. So when you look at a coin, there's an image on it. And we have... What do we have? Lincoln on the penny. Washington on the quarter. Jefferson's on what? The nickel? Or the dime? Something like that. FDR's on the dime. FDR's on the dime. And so... Similar to that, they would have had an image of... Now, the only difference between us is we're actually not allowed as a country, fun fact. We're not allowed to put somebody living on it. So don't, you're not going to get a Trump 20 next year. It's not going to happen. We're not allowed to put somebody living who's currently living on our currency. And that's because we don't have an allegiance to like a despot or a ruler. We're a government for the people, of the people, by the people. And so we don't put so much stock in... A person would have a monarch. You go to Canada, they have Queen Elizabeth on lots of their currencies. And so anyway, this would be similar where on one side of the coin would have been uh, Caesar's image. The emperor's image on the other side of the coin would have been something saying how much it was was worth. Uh, Verse 21, Jesus said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so that Greek word render, apodito me, it means to pay back. So, you know, he doesn't say give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Lots of times, even I'll misquote it, right? Like, well, you know, Jesus says give to Caesar what Caesar's give to God. It's not give to Caesar what is Caesar's because you give what? You give gifts, right? And so we're not giving to Caesar. He's not saying give it to Caesar. He's actually using, in a sense, a stronger word, pay back. He wants us to see it as a, there's actually a debt. You owe this to Caesar. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Why? Because by God's decree, uh, they have the right to uh, Caesar. The government has a right to assess taxes, and they have the obligation to pay it. Now, it's tax season in the good old U.S. of A., right? The most wonderful time of the year. And so since it's in the tax, let's just, a brief, word on taxes, Uh, even under blasphemous rulers, pagan rulers, idolatrous rulers who would literally, if you look at the timeline, pay attention, they would literally nail Jesus to the cross in a matter of days. Jesus told them to pay their taxes. Would it in some way, shape, or form go towards the tools that they would use to crucify Jesus? Sure. Uh, would it in some way, shape, or form support those who were employed in the killing of our Savior? 100%. Sure. I mean, would it buy the nails? Yes. Did Jesus know that? I'm going to say yes. Are the citizens responsible for what the taxes are used for? No. Right. God holds the government accountable for what the government does with our tax money, holds us accountable to pay the tax. Uh, John MacArthur might have said it best. He says this, quote, If in an age of pagan despotism and open persecution of the church, believers were obligated to pay taxes, how much more obligated are modern Christians who live in free and democratic societies? And so you may have in your mind, conjured up a spiritual reason you want to resist the payment of taxes. Um, It could even be surrounding the very issue that we're going to talk about today, right? You could have a reason in your mind where you think God would not have you pay taxes. And you just need to know that God recognizes none of those reasons. God's own word says that taxes are to be Paid, because by God's will and according to God's word, verse 21, these are part of the things that are Caesar's. In fact, viewed in the light of Scripture, the payment of taxes is obedience to Christ. Viewing this through the lens of Scripture could bring an opportunity for worship where we never would have expected it. Break out into song at H&R Block. That'll be interesting. They probably don't have that happen often. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, I get it. I see it in the text. Thank you. Is this like a rant, Pete? Like, are you... It wasn't that long ago that you said we were going to take a break from Luke so we could talk about the sanctity of human life. You're talking about the taxes of human life. This is not... I don't know... What we're talking about is taxes. What does this have to do with the sanctity of human, humans or life for the preborn or people with disabilities or the sojourner or the refugee or the elderly or anything like that? Every year, Pastor Peter, you preach on the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb and everywhere in between. You do this every year. We're talking about taxes. Look again at verse 19. Again, Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose image is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. So. Image, image on coin, in light of that, therefore, render. Image, therefore, give. Image, therefore, do. Image drives action. And so here's my question. What if verse 19, Jesus said, Show me a baby. And they brought him a baby. And Jesus said to them, whose image is on the baby? They would answer what? God's. Right? What if if Jesus said, show me a foreigner. And they brought him a foreigner. And Jesus said to them, whose image is on the foreigner? The answer is God's. What if Jesus said, show me someone with a disability? And they brought him someone with a disability and Jesus said, whose image is on this person? The answer would be God's. And so if Jesus said, Bring me a prostitute. Whose image is on the prostitute? God's. Jesus said, bring me an atheist. An atheist. Whose image is on the atheist? God's. Bring me your president. Whose image is on our president? God's. Whose image is on the post-abortive woman? God's. Whose image is on the Muslim? God's. And that image, just like the image on the coin of Caesar drives us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, the image that's on people should drive us to render to God what is God's. Point number one. Uh, You need to remember that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, We see this in Genesis 1. It's in your outline, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them in his image. Uh, Four chapters later in Genesis 5. uh, We read this in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. One chapter later, Genesis 6, verse 1, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. The New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. uh, Speaking of us putting on the new self, putting off the old, putting on the new self. Verse 10 says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. James 3 and verse 9, with it, it being the tongue, talking about how we use our tongue, how we use our speech, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Every person, every person is created with the image of God. Atheists who don't believe in God still bear the image of God. I imagine that's frustrating. But, but it's true. Every person bears the image and likeness of God. Not all currencies have images of government leaders on them. Like I said, we'll never have a currency in our country, in the United States, that has uh, the image of a, of a living person, a living leader, a living person of any type. In Canada, they have Queen Elizabeth on their currency. Other countries do it differently. But when it comes to bearing the image and likeness of God, it doesn't vary from person to person. Uh, every single solitary human being, born and pre-born, female, male, Christian, atheist, all of us bear the image of, of God. It's not a result of being saved. You might think you bear the image of God like it's one of the benefits of, of salvation. We get so much when we're saved, right? God gives us so much, eternal life, a relationship with our creator God, fellowship with other believers, the, the very Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, living inside, permanently, all believers. Uh, gifts that we can use to serve others and to build up his church. We get a lot. But we're not given the image and likeness of God when we're born again. We're actually given the image and likeness of God before we're born. We're given the image and likeness of God when we come to be and the only person who knows we exist is God himself. Before we looked like our parents had any resemblance to them, before that could be observed, we resembled God. Before anyone could say he, he's got his father's nose, she has her mother's smile or his uncle's chin, it could have been said she has her creator's image. And that would have been 100% true. Sight unseen would have been 100% true. And since all people are created in the image and likeness of God, we reflect God's intellect and freedom just when we make choices. This is important to see. Not when we make right choices, that's when we reflect righteousness, but just the image of God. We're like God because we can reason, we can think through things, and we can choose. Joshua 24 and verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve. Every day, people, Christians and non-Christians alike, make choices. When they do that, they reflect the image of God. Whether or not they believe in God, the fact that they, 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 they choose skyline over gold star, the fact that they can make that choice shows that they reflect the image of God and that they made the right choice. The, the fact that they, they make any choice at all, just the ability to choose in that way and think that, this reflects the image of God. We actually even reflect God's holiness. You say, what? We reflect God's holiness because we're created in in righteousness and created by God's will before the fall in in innocence. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. We reflect God's triune nature and love by being created for community with God and others. When you drop off your kids at a at a birthday party and they're happy to be around other kids and run around and go crazy and get hyped up on sugar. They're reflecting the image of God. They like being around people. When you like being in community with other people, when people tend to flock together around a water cooler, it's not just when, when people have godly discussions, they replace it. I'm saying when people are with people, they reflect the image of God. And so it's worth reminding ourselves that all people are created in the image and likeness of God, not just when they honor God, not just when they please God, not just when they choose to do the right thing, and not just when they're saved. I don't know when you were saved if you're a Christian, but you've been bearing the image and likeness of God from before you were known by anybody else. Which brings me to my second point, which is this. Christians have a better why when it comes to outreach, reaching other people than any other well-intended group of people. That's the title of the sermon is A Better Why. And we've said this before, but let's do it again. Finish the sentence, where there's a will, there's a way, right? That's true. If, somebody, if you want it, you'll get it. Like if you'll, you'll, you'll figure out a way to get it. For better or for worse, if you want something bad enough, you will likely figure out a way to get it. Where there's a will, where there's a desire, where there's a craving, where there's a, where there's a want, where there's a will, there's a way. You'll, you'll figure out a way. There's not always a will though. And so the will might drive you to find a way, but what drives the will? And the answer is the why, where there's a why there's a will, where there's a reason for something, then that will, that when you go back to the, why do I want this? Why am I doing this? Why am I acting this way? Why am I sacrificing to do this? Why am I giving away my money to this group of people, this church or this missionary? Why am I doing this? Oh, I remember it's for the gospel. Ah, where there's a why, there's a will. I desire to see the gospel spread. Now where there's a will, there's a way. I'm going to figure out how I'm going to do it. But if you lose the why, you'll lose your way. But where there's a why, there's a will. Where there's a will, there's a way. And Christians have a better why when it comes to reaching people, helping people, advocating for people. Look back at verse 16. 16. This is, they sent their disciples along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. Truthfully, Remember laying it on thick, blah, blah, blah. You do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Now I like to highlight, I don't, I don't oftentimes, you know, in the Greek, it says this, like I'll highlight the Greek if I think it's important, but I'm not just like dropping Greek phrases all the time. Um, for like fun facts for you to impress people at parties, because like chicks will dig it if you're a dude, like I'm not, I'm not doing that. Uh, I actually think sometimes unintentionally when that's constantly done, it causes people to almost distrust their Bibles a little. They're like, dang, bro, you, you reference a second language that I don't speak at all. Can I even trust my, can I read it? Is the prima facie reading of the text, can I be changed by that? And the answer is unequivocally yes. And so the more you study the original languages and look at a Bible on any academic level, you come out not distrusting your Bible more, but actually trusting your Bible more. And so when I highlight something, it's, 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 there's usually a reason for it because there's something that there's a nuance or something added to it that I think that we're, we're missing out on because we've translated it differently. Not we've translated it wrongly and you've got to learn Greek so you can... No, that's not true. Uh, there's textual variants, but there's nothing in there like, you know, if you read the Bible... Uh, in Greek, you'd find out that Jesus was actually married. Like, you're never going to find that. If you read the Bible in Greek, you'd find out that the Trinity thing is like, Like, you're not going to find any major difference. There's minor things. You're like, okay, that could be true and could not be true, but it doesn't affect salvation or justification or anything like that. But I think there's something in this verse that's worth calling to your attention, and it might actually be in a footnote in your Bible. I don't know, but I'm going to talk about it. Teacher, verse 16, we know that you are true, And teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, then look at this phrase for you are not swayed by appearances. Straight up Greek reading of that text. You know what it says? For you do not look at people's faces. It's a pretty powerful statement. And it's also pretty different from what we have in our English Bible. Like face, appearance, I feel like those are very different where they are. And so when you translate, so the, the, the point of this was that these hypocrites were saying, you're not not—you're impartial. You're not easily swayed. You're impartial. And so they would have said, you don't look at people's faces. I meaning that has no bearing on your impression of them. And so we translate it in our Bibles, for you are not swayed by appearances. That's not wrong. It's because it wouldn't make... It's almost an idiomatic expression that if you say, for you do not look at people's faces, we, America, we might think like, see how the issues with eye contact, like Jesus over here, like that's, that wouldn't read well to us. And so what's meant there is he's impartial, but let's just think about it for a minute. We, you do not care about anyone's opinion for you, Jesus, or not, you do not look at people's faces. I follow a God and have a Savior who looks not on appearances, not on first impressions, not on superficialities that you and me can be so captivated by as, as human beings. He looks not at faces but on the inner person and sees all people as who they really are bearers of the imago Dei, the image of their good creator, God. And so you want a verse to talk about the sanctity of human life for the preborn. There's your verse. We talk a lot about viability and age and size. And God's like, I don't look at any of that. I look at that person how old is that person? They have value from the beginning. Any other issue that has to do with the pro-life movement or a, 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 pro-life, whole, a pro-life ethic that we see throughout the Bible, there's your, that's a great verse for racism. That's a great verse for ethnic prejudice. That's a great verse for hatred. That's a great verse for a lot of things. We're reminded God does not look upon just the outside. And we want to be like him. And so listen, I'm like all for uniting with others for the cause of life, even if we disagree on, on other things. Sometimes that bothers people. It doesn't bother me. I hope it doesn't bother you. Like I'm not a Catholic, but I'm glad to have Catholics who are so dedicated to the most vulnerable among us. Like it'll be a long time before evangelical, Christ-loving, God-fearing Christians catch up to the progress that catholics have made for the ver- for the purpose of the sanctity of human life i mean they've got some connection to so many ultrasound machines you have no idea so i'm not a catholic but i'm glad to have catholics who are partnering for life i'm not an atheist but i'm glad to have the voice and the advocacy and the wisdom from the secular pro life movement that is a thing a very real thing a very effective thing actually i'm not a democrat But I'm so grateful for pro-life Democrats that unite with people who likely don't agree on much else. But they really, really care about the pre-born, despite the fact that they are in every way, shape, and form an anomaly. I'm grateful for pro-life Democrats. There's a lot of people out there who are ardently pro-life. Really love and want to reach people. And I'm grateful. And all I'm saying is if you have Christ, if you've been saved from above, if you've experienced his sovereign grace, his saving grace, his sanctifying grace, that although hopeless and helpless to save yourself, you now have the hope of Christ because he saved you. Then you have a better why than even the most ardent pro-life advocate who doesn't have Christ. You have a better why. Why? And where there's a why, there's a will. And where there's a will, there's a way. In verse 21, Jesus said, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so, therefore, my why? Why are you passionate about the sanctity of human life? Well, because just as I'm to render or to pay back the government, the taxes that are rightfully theirs, we make it our goal to render to the Lord what was rightfully his. His. People he created in his image and likeness to worship him as Lord. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. All right. Well, render, pay that debt, give Caesar what is his. Whose image is on the person? God's. All right. So what does it look like to render, to give back what is God's, what is rightfully his? Well, here's what I think it is. First of all, Jesus is our example of how to treat those in the midst of the most difficult earthly circumstances, like right in the middle of it. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, you may remember back, I think it was in October, I preached from Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 40 and following, uh, preaching on Jesus' healing and compassion on the woman with the issue of blood and then the, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter from death to life, Right? Because Jesus cares. We know he cares. And so Jesus is our example of meeting people like, boom, in the midst of difficult circumstances, not saying, ah, it's too, whew, it's a little, little messy. It's a lot of blood. It's a lot of death. I'm going to just, woo, okay. Thinks maybe, I mean, maybe next time a little sooner, but that's 12 years you've been, dang, girl. Okay. We're going to, I'll pray for you or I'll heal you from afar. Yeah. Jesus meets people in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their mess, in the midst of the most difficult circumstances to give them hope, to give them help, to show his love and compassion. Friends, I have the privilege of serving on the board at New Hope Center, who the videos put out by New Hope Center that you saw in the beginning were raising, raising funds for New Hope Center with those little baby bottles. And like Dave mentioned, you know, they do fit checks in cash, and they actually make less noise too. If you think about it, you'd be pretty miserable at New Hope if you didn't love babies. You're like, oh, I don't really love babies. I don't know why you're here. Like, people at New Hope Center love babies, love serving women, love men. But listen to me. You know what they love even more? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. They're primary motivation to doing what they're doing is not solely babies. Babies are cute. Not solely women. I just want to reach out to people or men I just want to reach out to people who are help. That is there, but it is a second to their love for Jesus Christ, getting to sit across from someone and explain to them options that they have for their immediate future and the best option that they have for eternity. That's what brings them to work. That's what brings them to do what they do or to volunteer. Without the gospel, we save the babies, and I think that's a great thing. But with the gospel, God might use us to not only save babies, but to save souls. And not only make a difference for this life, but make a difference for the next life. We have a better why. Jesus is our example of how to treat those in the midst, in the middle of the most difficult earthly circumstances. And we have him as our example going for us that the world does not. That other well-intended people don't, that I'm happy they're there. They just don't have the same why that we do. Jesus is our example of how to draw near to those whom others won't even acknowledge. In Mark chapter 1, we look at the fact that Jesus would heal a leper. A leper. People who had been totally ostracized, at best, people would have turned their nose up at them. I say at best because really people just forgot about them. I mean, they're just invisible. So at best, if you're like, ugh, at least you noticed that they were there. But in reality, lepers would have been taken out of the realm of your everyday life because they're lepers. And I mean, just look, have you seen them? Like, we don't want to interact with them. They're just, that's, can somebody help them? I bet someone else so can help them from afar. Put them all over there. Think of who in your life, what group of people in your life, any group of people who's the leper today. Who do you wish would just all go away? Who would all go away? Who, who, do you, who do you wish? Maybe don't yell it out. That's awkward. But like if you think people that you just wish would all just, I wish they would just be gone out of my life, out of our society, out of our country. Why can't they all just live there? Why can't they all just pack up and go there? Why can't they all live in a different country, on a different planet, in a, in a different state? Who are the lepers of your mind and heart? Just get them out. Ugh. And I'm not even saying I disagree with you. I'm just saying I think Jesus disagrees with us. Because a leper came up to Jesus and said, if you will, you can heal me. If you're willing. And Jesus is like, I'm willing. And he touched him and he healed him. It's the brevity of the gospel of Mark, three verses. If you will, you can make me well. Jesus like, I, think I got the time. I'm God. Boom. Healed. Not, uh, ooh. I just bathed, we don't bathe often, (laughs) meets people in the midst of their circumstances. Let me tell you about Scarlet Hope. Scarlet Hope is a ministry that seeks to reach um, women in the adult entertainment industry and to provide them help and to provide them hope and hopefully to provide them a way out. And the volunteers at Scarlet Hope love people. I trust they love people. I trust they don't love the en- adult entertainment industry. I trust they long for a day when it would be no more. I trust they're concerned that people eat a decent meal. And so that's their, where there's a will, there's a way. And so how do we get to interact with the people who are in the adult entertainment industry? Well, you've got to go to them. It's not just like inviting them like, hey, when you finish work, maybe you want to go out for coffee. So they go to them. How do you get in? They, they make food. They bring food. Like we'll, we'll feed them dinner so they don't have to just work on Red Bull or whatever. So we'll, we'll bring them dinner. And so they bring them dinner and they're inside the gentleman's club and they talk to them and interact with them. Hopefully build a relationship with them to do that week after week after week after week after week. After week. If you go to their website, cincinnati.scarlethope.org, you'll see a beautiful picture of the mighty Ohio River, beautiful picture of the Roebling Bridge, drone photography, so cool, and big, easy-to-read words that appear across your screen in an almost humorously obvious way that say, we exist to share the hope and love of Jesus to women in the adult entertainment industry. Try to miss it. Like, I wonder what they're about. Like, you can't... It's Boom, right there. That's why they exist. They have a better why. The fact that their lives have been so profoundly impacted by their Savior gives them a will to see that impact in the midst of a, of a, of a people group who would be forgotten, who would be like, oh, yeah, I can't, can't touch that with a 12-foot barge pole. And so they don't just invite them to go somewhere, but they go to them in the gentleman's club with food to give to the dancers. Why? Because where there's a why, there's a will. What's their why? These people need help. They need hope. They need Jesus. Well, where there's And I want to get inside that club so I can, okay, well, what do we do? Food. Food. Let's do food. Where there's a why, there's a will. Where there's a will, there's a way. But you understand that why is not solely compassion for people in this life. But giving them hope for the next. A better why. A better why. Again, grateful for so many organizations who, are, who, who, who realize the, the traumatic impact that this industry has on people and has the people even in it. Instead of viewing them as like, oh, you're the enemy. Going out and rescuing them and giving them hope and help and a better future and helping them get jobs and helping them break free of human trafficking and all that stuff. I am profoundly grateful. I'm just saying you have a better why than they do. Next, Jesus is our example of loving others regardless of their past. Probably no better example of that than John chapter 4, which we don't have time to go to today. But it recounts to us the account of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you read the account of Jesus and that woman, you see Jesus engaging a woman despite her, actually despite her present, She's living with someone who is not her husband. But also despite her fairly colorful past, she had five husbands. Right? No one gets five husbands in like a, that's a productive month. No, that's years. So, I mean, she had a, a past that was like, wow, like leading into that. This is a big deal. And when Jesus says, like, go call your husband, like, she's like, I have no husband. And that's when Jesus is like, true, you have no husband. Uh, you've had five and you're living with someone now who's not your husband. So, actually, yes, you are correct. You have no husband. And Jesus is like, checkmate. But Jesus was not turned off by her past at all. Who sees her? Jesus. Who speaks to her? Jesus. Who cares about her? Jesus. Who's turned off by her past? Uh, Not Jesus. Why? Because what does Jesus not look at? For you, Lord, do not look at faces. You don't look at just what we can see, what we can know. You look at the inner person. You look at the Imago day. You look at this person as needing salvation. Jesus is our example of loving others regardless of their past. You know, sometimes it's hard to get past your past. Like what's not told in Jesus and the Samaritan woman is like, it ends well, right? She believes in... Christ and tells other people like come and see this man like and first they come because she invited them and then they're like we no longer believe because you invited us we now believe because we believe he's the real deal we're saved we're in that's where it ends I can't help but want like what was the next day like right did she go home did she tell him I'm leaving did she leave did she kick him out and she stayed Sometimes, when you come to Jesus Christ, you realize you are now going to live forever. You will live ever after, but there is no promise that you will live happily ever after. In fact, sometimes it becomes infinitely more difficult now than it was. Nobody comes to Christ from a traumatic experience and just lives happily ever after. But that's okay because Jesus is our example of loving others regardless of their past. Um, for those of you who are post abortive, you need to know that Jesus loves all of his people regardless of their past. For those of you who think that that's probably in another church, that's probably in another, probably in a different demographic, uh, you are statistically incorrect. I can say with confidence you're sitting within, listen to me, feet, of someone whose lives have been impacted by this. And so, because Jesus is our example of reaching people and gives us a better why of people, regardless of their past, I wanna make sure that you're aware of a Bible study that's about to begin. And it's on the bottom of your outline. It's a post-abortion Bible study for women that will be starting soon. And if you've experienced abortion in your past, would you reach out to Camille? Uh, Camille is a wonderful woman of God who's a great counselor uh, and post-abortive herself. And she will be conducting a Bible study that I believe the Lord would use you would use in your life to give you hope and help and healing where you need it. It will be unbelievably discreet. I can't give you any other, I don't know any other details. I just know literally if you reach out to Camille, there's her email address, she'll connect you with the details and make sure that's done in a way where your uh, story, where your identity, things are kept strictly confidential. And so I want to encourage you to receive hope and help from God's Word if you believe. With all your heart, you believe that Jesus loves you regardless of your past, but you can't get past your past. Finally, Christians have a better way than even the best we can vote or hope for. We have a better way than anything we could hope would come out of any, any level of government. Friends, you might be aware that the Supreme Court is deciding a case right now that will have the greatest impact on abortion since Roe v. Wade in 1973. The decision will likely be handed down when major decisions typically get handed down, so likely in June. And there's actually lots of reasons to be encouraged, lots, um, that Roe v. Wade will be at least significantly curtailed, at best overturned. So I'm excited about that, and I'm Praying for that. And I've also been let down by this court before. Yeah, but it's different. Yeah, I know. We've got a conservative majority. Listen to me. The Supreme Court has had a conservative majority for most of your life. 50 of the last 51 years. Conservatives have put more people on the Supreme Court than any liberal. By far and away. Uh, a conservative majority of Supreme Court justices decided Roe v. Wade in 73. And so I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful and I hope that God does a great thing. But I've been let down before. I would not be surprised to be let down again. And I'm hoping and praying for a difference this time. And if Roe is overturned, that'll be glorious. And I can tell you, like I've read, the 26 states have trigger laws that... Trigger laws are basically like, hey, the only reason we allow abortions is because we have to. And so if Roe's overturned, boom, 26 states, the state of Kentucky being one of them, abortion will be at best criminalized and eliminated at, at least significantly curtailed. And so there's lots of things that will happen when that happens, and I, I hope so. You need to also know that Planned Parenthood is not unaware of this, and so they're doing things significantly to make sure that people, like I'll give you an example, in Illinois, Planned Parenthood is opening up branches along their borders of states that have those trigger laws like Kentucky and Indiana so that abortion can remain more accessible. And so as excited as I am, and I hope you would be, and I'm praying for it, please understand where that would be great, but it takes the, it just creates 50 more individual problems instead of one big problem. So it doesn't just totally overturn everything. Yay. It's definitely something worth celebrating. If it happens, it doesn't get rid of you think what are, what are crisis pregnancy centers going to do if Rose overturned? Uh, the same thing. Like the same thing. Or, or similar to the video we saw before, people can go the more popular route now, which is a, a, a chemical abortion, and just in the privacy of their own phone and home, work this, work this out. Making things available by telehealth. But here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not upset, and I'm not hopeless, Are you surprised that the law doesn't save? Are you surprised that the law doesn't bring about change? Right? Because on the one hand, we say guns don't kill people. People kill people. Right? And so most people who say that are like, it's not the laws. You can't, no one's not going to, like, you think Cain wouldn't have killed Abel if someone said you shouldn't do that. He's like, oh, you're right. I really shouldn't. Like, that wouldn't have happened. That was a hard issue. And so it's the same people where it's like, we have to understand supply and demand. And we've said this before, but it's probably worth repeating that if we overturn Roe, that'll have a significant impact on supply. Demand is a hard issue. People feel hopeless and helpless or angry or desperate. The demand, the desire, where there's a why, there's a will. Where there's a will, there's a way. If somebody wants to terminate a pregnancy, they're going to find a way to do it. It's just going to be a longer drive. And so... I'm not super discouraged that the law won't provide, like, are we really surprised that the law doesn't provide the answers to everything that we want? We've never, even God's law doesn't do that. Like God's law himself in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, it says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's talking about God's law. How many, we don't have time for a straw poll. God's law is better than man's law. Just Spoiler, God's law better than man's law and God's law couldn't save people. You think man's law is going to save people? Of course, we're not surprised by that. But see, here's the thing. I'm not discouraged. I hope that law changes. I hope and I pray. I'm for it. I'm for petitioning. Went to the March for Life last year. Been six times. Like I'm, I'm for it. Call, petition, pray, write, do your thing. My hope's just in this and in the gospel because this affects demand. This affects the desire. This can change people's hearts. That's why we have a better why. And so when we can change people's hearts and minds because of the grace of God at work in somebody's heart and mind, that law can, quite frankly, do whatever it wants. I'm going for the person. I'm hoping that the person's heart and mind is changed. And even if it's available on every, like, you could put prostitutes all over my neighborhood. I'm still not going to hook up with one. That's because I have no interest in a prostitute, and I love my wife, and I love Jesus. So supply, it's like, why isn't Peter with a prostitute? Lack of supply. No, not lack of supply. Lack of demand. I don't desire that. And so if the word of God can change somebody's desires and demands, I'm putting my hope and faith in this. And let the world do what it does. And I hope it changes and we should advocate and that's fine. Just I'm not going to be super disappointed if I'm let down again. Color me surprised. The court let me down. Paul tells us in Romans 8, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Friends, I hope you see that we as Christians, I'm not talking to conservatives, I'm not talking to Democrats, I'm not talking to Republicans. We as Christians have a better why that drives us to a better way who is Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the truth. And the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, John 14 and verse 6. We have a better why to drive our will to advocate where there's a why, there's a will. Where there's a will, there's a way. And that way has a name, and his name is Jesus.